The Apostle John walked closely with Jesus during all of his earthly ministry. He was used of God to give us a remarkable, intimate, powerful account of the ministry of Jesus. The Gospel of John was written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. John composed his Gospel to provide reasons of saving faith proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and offers the gift of salvation. He declares these things are written so that you may believe. We return this morning to our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of John. Uh, we, um, we had gotten through the end of chapter 10, so if you would, take your Bible and turn to John chapter 11. The... Uh, Seventh signpost miracle. The last of the um, miracles that John calls his signposts occurs in this chapter. It is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. The chapter is, is, is rich with, with very, very important things we need to observe. And so we're going to be taking our time as we make our way through John chapter 11. Remember, the sermon outlines are available in printed form. As you come into the worship center, they're available online for download, or if you just want to use the digital version in your app or on your tablet or whatever, there are lots of different ways to get to the outline. This morning, we come to a moment when, when last we were sort of with Jesus in John chapter 10, a, uh, John chapter 10 is, is the, the great shepherd chapter of the teaching and public ministry of Jesus. And much of the teaching in John chapter 10 takes place around the Feast of the Tabernacles, which, as, as Brother Chad, I believe it was, taught us, is um, Hanukkah. So uh, we, we have come through the time of year which corresponds to early, early December on our calendar. And now, as we round the corner, we are now sometime in the spring between that, that last Feast of Lights and the Passover week during which Jesus is going to go to the cross. So we are now approaching the finale of Jesus' earthly ministry. Now, John, probably more dramatically than any other gospel, gives a lot of his time and attention to this, this last season of Jesus' public ministry. There are 21 chapters in the, in the book of John we're 10 chapters in, and in that 10 chapters, we've basically covered about three years. And now, with, with 11 chapters to go, inclusively, we will be looking toward the very end of Jesus' public ministry. So John almost John has been described by one author as, as the story of Jesus' last week with a 10-chapter prologue. Uh, it's not quite that, but sort of time is going to slow down as we, as we work our way through the rest of the Gospel of John. I pray that you'll continue to be edified and challenged to be more like Jesus as we study this together. This morning, John chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. Now a certain man was ill. I've taken that for my sermon title this morning because that, that clause... 
establishes most of what you need to know for what comes next. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now a certain man was ill. Roman numeral one on your outline, the problem. The problem, this guy's sick. This guy's sick, we don't have any, any sort of further medical descriptor of what was wrong with him. As the story plays out, it, it, it's evident he wasn't just a little bit sick. He was, he was mortally ill. He was on the cusp of death as, as the story opens. And there, there are several things we need to put together and need to know. I'm, I'm, I'm fond of saying, and it's not original with me, but I'm, I'm fond of reminding people that the truth that you are going to need in the dark, you better learn in the light. Meaning that when you experience the great crises, during those crises, it's too late to put the framework of understanding biblically what's going on. It's too late to, to build that framework when the crisis is upon you. So it is best and I pray this more for some of you in a room this size, full of adults in a fallen world, some of you are in the crisis right now. It may be related to health, it may be related to family and relationships, it may be related to money, it may be related to any number of things. Some of you are in a crisis right now, but it's also the case, some of you aren't. But if you're not in a crisis right now, will you agree with me one is coming for you? Are we on the same page? We live in a fallen world and I've stopped saying when things get back to normal. I've decided that phrase is no longer useful. <laughs> Let's look specifically at illness, but it can be said of any other sorts of crises. Three things I've said on the outline. First, illness. Your illness or the illness of someone you love, letter A, is not a violation of God's plan. Somebody is sick, it must be that God's plan has somehow gone off the rails. The converse statement is, is that there are those that would assert that you and those you love being in flourishing health is always God's plan or God's will for you. That statement is not true. 
It is not necessarily true that illness indicates any sort of variation in God's plan. In fact, there are numerous times, I just scratched off a list almost without thinking about it. Um, Genesis 32, we've known, by the time we get to Genesis 32, we've known Jacob for a while. And Jacob is a, is a glib um, personality who has been bouncing his way through life, deceiving and taking advantage of people. And God is going to bless Jacob with a great deal more humility and usefulness. Not because he dislikes Jacob, but because he loves him a lot and wants to use his life greatly. So God basically nearly tears his leg off. And Jacob spends the rest of his life in calm and humility dragging his leg. And that dislocated hip was not a sign of God's plan being violated. It was a step in God's plan being fulfilled for Jacob. Job, in Job chapter two. In Job chapter one, in that dialogue between God and Satan that Job knows nothing about, the first round of ground rules is you can, uh, you can have at his whole life situation, but you can't make him sick. And you remember in chapter one, Job loses everything, family, wealth. But in chapter two, his health comes into play. And I suppose you could argue that it's Satan that actually in the most immediate sense causes Job's illness, but we're privy to a conversation where the living God says to Satan, have at him. And so while Satan may be the first immediate cause of Job's illness, remember Satan is a whipped dog on a short leash. Satan is a created being. The living God is an omnipotent, non-created, always, always, and has always been. It is not an even match. Satan and God are not in a tug of war where things hang in the balance. That'd be like you playing tug of war with a flea, except the strength difference between God and Satan is greater than the strength difference between you and a flea. Because one is finite, the other is infinite. Do not ever lapse into any sort of wicked mind frame that puts Satan and God in some sort of even match. So Job, afflicted with profound illness. The apostle Paul, what physical condition did the living God give Saul of Tarsus as a gift on the road, to, he, he, he gave him new birth on the road to Damascus, but he gave him a little present in terms of a physical condition that, that Saul had to deal with for a few days. What physical condition did the Holy Spirit give to Saul as a gift on the road to Damascus? Do you remember? He blinded him. I love you. I'm going to use you. I'm going to take away your eyes for a bit. In John chapter 9, just a couple of chapters ago, you remember 
When the, the man also blindness, the man, the man born blind, the disciples asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered in, chapter, in verse three of John nine, neither this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. I designed his blindness because I'm up to something larger. Child of God, he designs your trials because he's up to something larger. And in fact, you probably at least maybe, already know what it is he's up to. And if you don't, this text is going to make it fairly plain. Letter B, illness is not a sign of God's apathy or powerlessness. Lord, do you not care? He does. Lord, is this, is this the one you can't do anything about? It isn't. We, um, because in, our, in, our, in the momentum of sort of pop culture theology that we may have picked up along the way, that pop culture theology that wants to say, if, if things are going well in my life as I define it, that's God. And when things are not going well in my life as I would define it, that's something other than God. So in that pop culture theology, we, um, we, 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 we look for ways to let God off the hook, so to speak, as we deal with our trial. And a couple of ways to let God off the hook, as though he needs letting off the hook, is, is well, he, 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 he must not care enough about the little thing I'm going through. Oh, yes, he does. In fact, what do you, if he, if he doesn't care about the little things in your life, but he does care about the big things in your life, how big does a thing in your life have to be to get the attention of infiniteness? You know what I mean? If he's, if he's responding to what you see as the scale of issues in your life, when does, when does the eternal throne of the universe look at you and go, ooh, well, that's a big one. He's not responding to the scale of your difficulties as you see them. He cares as much about your ingrown toenail as he does your brain embolism. Because from where he sits, those are pretty much the same size. It's not apathy. And for heaven's sakes, it's not powerlessness. Well, I don't think even God himself can do anything about that. What sort of God have you invented that is powerless in the face of your trial? Now what that means is if he's not apathetic, he cares. If he's not powerless, he could change everything about your circumstances like that, and he's not doing it. I prayed 
that the roof of our house would make it one more year. It didn't. So we're having a new roof put on in a couple of weeks. Is God apathetic about the money that I get to pay a roofing contractor? He is not. Is God powerless to stretch my roof another year or two? He most certainly is not. So it's okay with him that the Howards get to get a new roof in January. And I have to reckon with a universe where that's okay with him. So do you. And then let her see. All the faith and good works that you throw at it cannot avoid illness. Now, can we make, our, can we make ourselves sick? You know, if you're a nine-pack-a-day smoker and you end up with respiratory issues, oh, Lord, why'd this happen to me? Oh, Lord, why'd this happen to me? I mean, come on. On the other hand, do you know that the, in the, I think it was the 1970s, it was a man by the name of Jim Fix that popularized running, recreational running as exercise. Sort of the founder of the jogging movement was a guy named Jim Fix. Anybody remember how Jim Fix died? Of a heart attack while running. You run for cardiovascular health. You should. The guy that came up with that on a popular scale died of heart disease while running. <sighs> If I just have enough faith, I won't get sick. Job had superior faith. He lost everything. If I just do everything right, I can avoid illness. <laughs> how's, that, how's that going? Hmm. So a certain man, I love that phrase, a certain man. This is not a random occurrence. And, and Luke goes to great specific detail to tell us, this is a guy who, who loves Jesus, whom Jesus loved. He's, he's very specifically this man, this time, this moment, this illness. We have a very real problem. So let her be, the Roman two, I mean, the plea. The plea comes to Jesus in verse three. So the sisters sent to him. Remember, Jesus, we know from chapter 10, verse 40, Jesus is on the other side of the Jordan where he's been now for, for perhaps as long as a couple of months. They sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. There's a lot in that plea that, that we can take away as a model for, for prayer and for intercession. Just three things. First, there is an appeal to the Lord's authority. Lord, Lord, that's how they open. That's not unintentional. I mean, if, if he can't do anything, why pray? If you're not crying out from your smaller heart to his greater heart, why make a plea at all? He has invited us to pray. He has invited us to ask, seek, and knock. He has invited us into his presence. And when we ask him for things, we're asking for things that he has it in his power to do.
Let me take a side note for a minute. The prayer of faith spoken of in James chapter one is not a prayer that tells God what he is going to do. Be careful with that. It is not your business to tell God what he is going to do. The prayer of faith reminds him that you know what he can do. Lord, I know what you can do. That's the prayer of faith. Not what, Lord, because I have said these words, here's what you must do. Oh my, who do you think you are? You're gonna, you're gonna sit up, you're gonna, you're gonna ask him to scooch over on the throne for a minute and make room for you? You're not likely to do that. But it's not wrong to cry out to him saying, Lord, I know that you are the in an illness, Lord, you are the great physician. You are the God of all comfort. You are the giver of every good and perfect gift. And Lord, you, you have everything you need at your disposal to solve this crisis, whether it's illness or anything else, immediately, if that is what you desire to do. And Lord, you've said in your word, sometimes we have not because we ask not, so Lord, I'm asking. That's a prayer of faith. They acknowledge his authority. Letter B, it's an appeal to relationship. Lord, he whom you love. Lord, you know Lazarus. The, the word love here is not agape. It's not that unconditional self-sacrificial commitment to the well-being of another, which certainly Jesus would have had for Lazarus. Here it's the word phileo, which is the word for, as in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It's brotherly love, it's kinship love. Lord, your, your good friend, Lazarus, the one with whom you have a, a, a bud relationship, your bud's sick. They appeal to relationship. We who are the adopted children of the living God can appeal to relationship in prayer. And finally, it's an acknowledgement of reality. He whom you love is ill. It just is what it is, and he's sick. There's a movement inside what calls itself Christianity, and we've talked about this often enough, the, the so-called health and wealth or prosperity gospel movement or the name it, claim it movement that says that you can tell God what he's going to do, and if your faith is forceful enough, you can cause God to obey your will. That is horrific, it is blasphemous. It's not even Christianity. But it's made its way into even the godless, even the culture which does not profess to believe in God. The most recent wave started with the, public, the making of the movie and the publication of the book, The Secret, in 2006. The Secret. The author, Rhonda Byrne, claims that the great secret of the universe is that you have the power to manifest reality by simply thinking and saying that a thing is true even when it isn't. I am a billionaire. I am a billionaire. I am a billionaire, and eventually you'll be one. I am healthy. I am healthy. I am healthy, and eventually you will be. At its basic level, that's just poppycock. Just ridiculousness. 
At its more fully flowered level, where Byrne herself is, it's occultic, it's spell-casting. It is heinously and atrociously evil. I don't often advocate book burning, but if you've got a copy of The Secret and The Fireplace, I know what you ought to be doing this afternoon. Get that mess off your bookshelf and out of your head. Christianity deals with reality as it is. They shouldn't have said he's sick. They probably manifested greater sickness for him. They should have said, Lazarus appears to be sick, but he's well, he's well, he's well, we claim it. No, he's sick. Christianity is reality. Christianity is grounded in reality. We don't have to be Pollyanna tellers of lies to ourselves or others. We have the truth. And Lazarus was sick. In fact, he was bad sick. Which leads us to Roman numeral three, the purpose. Why was Lazarus sick? The Lord loved him, and he did. And the Lord can make sickness go away less effort than you can throw a light switch. What's going on here? Now, if you don't catch this, you will spend the rest of our time in chapter 11 puzzled. This is, this is key. Now, before we even read on, if you've been around the teaching of God's word for a while. If you've been around McGregor for a while, what is always, always the most important answer to a why question asked of God? What is the always true answer to why when we have a why question for God? What's the number one thing God is always up to? His own glory. Why, God? This is for my glory. And what is the number two answer? Based on his promises in his word, what's the number two answer of what he's always up to? It's not as important as his glory. The universe has no value as important as the glory of God. Creation was created for the glory of God. And everything within creation will be resolved to the glory of God. What's number two? The good of his people. And who gets to define good? He does, you're not smart enough. Now watch him spell it out. This is one of the places in scripture from which we see that to be true. It's explicitly spelled out here. The purpose, letter A, first and foremost, God's glory. Jesus, when he heard it, said, this illness does not lead to death. Now, some of y'all gonna get heartburn from that because Lazarus is going to die. By the way, he's going to die, he's going to get raised from the dead, and then ultimately one figures he died again. So what do you mean this illness does not lead to death? Well, it doesn't. It leads through death. In fact, Lazarus is going to die twice and then never die again. The road of Lazarus' life 
may lead through death, but it doesn't lead to death. That's what Jesus is saying. Death is not Lazarus's destination. Death is just one more mile marker. And so it is for you if you are a child of God. This illness doesn't lead to death. It is for the glory of God. Remember chapter 9, verse 3? Why was this guy born blind? So that my works would be demonstrated. In short, so that my glory would be evident. Lazarus is sick for the glory of God. It is the highest and always truest answer to the unanswerable whys of your life. Russell, I don't get it. I don't blame you. I've become so accustomed to not getting it I almost don't try to get it anymore. <laughs> Someone has said that sufficient faith will always be mistaken for apathy. God's got it. This is for his glory. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's awful. I know. Yeah, but I'm having a terrible time with it. I know. But I've cried my eyes out. I know. What's it for? Where's the why? It's for his glory. It's for his glory. And he can be trusted for your good as he sees it. It's an enigmatic statement. Jesus loved, verse 5, Martha and his sister and Lazarus. He cared very deeply about them. Verse 6 is translated correctly. In fact, it's translated very precisely. So, cause and effect. Therefore, he loved them a lot. Therefore, he hurried to solve the problem. That's what we expect, right? No. He loved them a whole lot so he pushed pause on his own evident working for two days. He saw to it because of his love for them that the illness progressed and Lazarus died. Why? For his glory and their ultimate good. Because see, they're not going to be telling a healing story when this whole chapter has ended. They're not gonna have a healing story. They're not gonna have a he was sick but he got better story. No, 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 no. They're gonna have something much, much more remarkable. If you're not one of his people, that promise that he's working for your good doesn't apply. See, the simplest place where we see that promise is in Romans 8.28. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. 
If you're outside of Christ this morning and you just have come to believe that a somehow animated universe, well, you know, all, everything always just tends to work out for good. Are you out of your mind? Are you paying any attention? No, it doesn't. It gets bad to bad to worse, and then if God's word is true, and it is, you go to hell forever. All things work together for hell for those who are outside of Christ. It's a new year. It's a mile marker where our minds turn to new beginnings. What a great time to begin to follow Jesus with everything you've got. Turn from your sin. Trust him by faith that his death on the cross was sufficient to absorb the wrath of God due to you. It would take you an eternity to pay off your sin debt. He paid it off on the cross if you will repent and follow him. That becomes available to you instantaneously if you trust Jesus and Jesus alone. Not your own deeds for your salvation. Today would be a really good day to do that. Then you can know that the ultimate why of your life is answered with his glory and your good as he trustworthily sees it.